Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines and mark the 10th anniversary of the Maidan protests with leading participant Aliona Halivko. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 21st of November, one year and 270 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley and former Ukrainian MP and now Managing Director at the Henry Jackson Society, Aliona Halivko. Now I'm going to start with the updates, and let's go to let's go to Kiev. So Lloyd Austin, U.S. Defense Secretary, said yesterday the U.S. is going to be sending more HIMARS rockets to Ukraine as part of a new hundred million U.S. dollar aid package. He was in Kiev yesterday, a surprise visit, his third, I think he said, the second since the full-scale invasion. He gave a brief press conference last night in Kiev, which I dialed in for. Um, the package is also going to include Stinger, anti-aircraft missiles, Javelin anti-tank stuff, and more than 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition. Uh, the deal was agreed, well, Mr. Mr. Austin said that it was going to reaffirm the United States' steadfast support for Ukraine. He was asked in questions about um, about that support, and he you know, very firmly reiterated the line about standing with Kiev for as long as it takes, etc., etc. As I mentioned yesterday, I think we're... We are kind of moving on a bit now. We want we want a bit more. We want that fleshed out. What does as long as it takes mean? Is he actually going to, is President Biden going to say that it is in the US and the West's strategic interest for Russia to be defeated? We, we need a bit more than as, as long as it takes, I think. But anyway, that's just the mind of Dom. Next, Russia has not used its uh, what's described as premier cruise missiles for two months as it builds up a stockpile for the expected winter bombardment of Ukrainian critical infrastructure. This is according to Britain's MOD. They say today that the strikes over the weekend, last weekend, that saw primarily Kyiv, but other areas too, hit by around 50 Shahid drones, Iranian-made Shahid 131-136 drones, that was likely to degrade or likely aimed at degrading Ukraine's air defences ahead of any concerted winter campaign of strikes against the energy um, infrastructure. The weekend strikes were launched in two in, in waves on two axes from Kursk to the east and Krasnodar in the southeast. But Russia 
has now ref- uh, refrained from launching its uh, its premier air-launched cruise missiles from the heavy bomber fleet for nearly two months, which has probably allowed it to build up a substantial stock of those missiles. British Defence Intelligence say uh, Russia is highly likely to use these missiles if it repeats last year's efforts to destroy Ukraine's critical national infrastructure, which I think is highly likely, as they say. Next, uh, Russia's Defence Ministry says its soldiers have fought off attempts by Ukraine to establish new footholds on the left bank of the Dnipro River. So down in Herzon region, we're, we're still talking about this, uh, whatever this lodgement is across across the river. It's been there for some weeks now. Now, that opinion from Russian MOD uh, contradicts open source analysis and the Russian mill blog community when they're talking about the um, the left bank. Russian MOD said Marines, aviation and artillery were stopping all elements by the armed forces of Ukraine to carry out amphibious landings on the Dnipro Islands and the left bank of the Dnipro River. It said Ukrainian forces were suffering heavy casualties and losing equipment in these attempts. And they also published a video which they said showed Marines defeating Ukrainian soldiers. We can see a number of troops firing a variety of weapons, but it's unclear. The footage doesn't say where, when. There's nothing to indicate who's who's firing, who's being shot at, uh, when it was taken, anything like that, or the outcome of any of that. Uh, so I think we'll take that with a pinch of salt, partly because those claims are contradicted by the Institute for the Study of War and the Russian mill blog community. ISW says that Ukrainian forces have continued their operations on the left bank. They also cited some some Russian bloggers who said that Ukraine has advanced in the area. ISW also say geolocated footage from yesterday, or published yesterday, I should say, shows Russian forces were using a TOS-1 Alpha thermobaric artillery system. The the artillery system that thermobaric, so uses oxygen, creates a huge overpressure. It's a a a much larger blast than you get from conventional artillery. ISW saying that they've geolocated footage saying this TOS-1 Alpha was used uh, on Ukrainian forces near Krinky, which is a across the river about four k's inland from the river although it's all a lot of rivulets there and little bits and pieces but four k's ish from the main river itself and about a dozen or so 15 k's maybe east of Hezon city now russian mill bloggers uh, said ukrainian forces had attacked uh, attacked the ukrainians near poima this is across the river pishanivka again there's about a dozen kilometers east of the of Hezon and three or four k's inland. Um, but interesting, those areas are about 15 k's west of Krinky, where we think the biggest concentration of Ukrainian forces is, and does suggest that there is a there's a, a, a sort of linear lodgement, if you like, of, of Ukrainian forces. Again, quite how much ground is there to be held, because it is very boggy and marshy and lots of little islands and rivulets and, and what have you. But even so, as I said yesterday, that, that makes it... Um, makes it difficult to advance and difficult to tell who's holding which bit of ground but also makes it exceedingly difficult to retreat if you come under any sustained pressure and it looks as if Ukraine is currently not under uh, significant pressure there. Now then moving on Francis big day today we'll uh, look forward to coming to our guest Aliona shortly but um, Francis if you could just tear us up please Why, what are we interested in today? Yes, well, thanks, Dom. As you say, a historic day for Ukraine and indeed for Europe. It marks the 10-year anniversary of the Maidan protests, the momentous events which were the critical precursor to the revolution of dignity that culminated in the ousting of President Viktor Yanukovych. It is a foundational event for those in Ukraine who sought to shake off Moscow's malign influence and 
one I need not dwell on in this segment because I'm looking at someone who was not only there, but who was an active participant in it. But I'll talk about how it's being marked, first of all. President Zelensky has released a 10-minute video calling the protests Ukraine's first counter-offensive. Ten years ago, he said, we began a new chapter in our struggle. Ten years ago, Ukrainians launched their first counter-offensive against lawlessness and an attempt to rob us of our European future, against unfreedom. Year after year, step by step, we make every effort to ensure that, among the other stars on the EU flag, which represents the unity of European nations, our star shines as well, the Ukrainian star. Only the strong could be united, united so that they become free, free so that they have dignity, for the sake of new times. Happy Dignity and Freedom Day to the strong people of the strong country. Glory to Ukraine. Now, many senior European figures are in Kyiv to mark the occasion. Maya Sandu, president of Moldova, of course, another country seeking a future within the European Union, will be there discussing the subject in Kyiv today and join Zelensky and his wife at the memorial to those Maidan protesters who were shot by the police. I honoured all those who stood for freedom and who made the ultimate sacrifice, she said. European Council President Charles Michel is also there to take part in talks about EU accession, posting on X that it is a good time to be back in Kyiv among friends. Now, Dom, you mentioned Lloyd Austin there, and that is, of course, probably the most significant attendee present. But Germany's Defence Minister Boris Pistorius, too, has also made a surprise visit, saying, I'm here firstly to pledge further support, but also to express our solidarity and deep bond and also our admiration for the courageous, brave and costly fight that is being waged here. For the past fortnight, we've reflected on the significance of the European Commission recommending that Ukraine's accession talks formally begin, symbolic of that shift that has taken place in attitudes towards Kyiv within the West as a result of the deep sacrifices the country has made in resisting the invasion and fighting for a new future. Indeed, in that video I mentioned, Zelensky said Ukraine's once, quote, romantic dream of joining the EU is now a reality. And as I said the last time Eliona was here, I think he is correct to say that, though we may be talking many years before that finally comes to fruition. But I do think it is inevitable. Certain steps have been made. That process has become a reality in a much quicker amount of time than would have been conceivable were this this war not to have happened. It is for that reason, of course, that Russia continues to publicly pursue its maximalist aims for the conflict, namely the eradication of what it sees as Kyiv's neo-Nazi government. Too many forget this, but one need only listen to the rhetoric continuing to come out of Moscow to see there is little evidence of their being humbled by the defeats of last year. Russia's ambassador at large told reporters in Moscow only today that the current regime is absolutely toxic. We do not see any options for coexistence with it at the moment. He accused Ukraine of war crimes against civilians and said the West would eventually lose interest in the war. We can resist NATO just as much as we need to fulfil the tasks that the president has formulated, he added. It's no wonder then that it is widely believed there were several attempts by the Kremlin to assassinate Zelensky. 
He's given an interview to the Sun newspaper and Fox News, where he says there were at least five attempts he believes were orchestrated by Putin. Now we don't know the exact number, but we firmly believe that it is around that because we've been covering this ourselves for some time. Zelensky said the first one is very interesting when it is the first time, and after that, it's just like COVID. First of all, people don't know what to do with it, and it's looking very scary. And after that, it's just intelligence sharing. Detail one more group come to Ukraine to attempt this. It just goes on and on. Now it's revealing that the reporter's boss, the reporters that reported on this story, Lachlan Murdoch, who in September took over News Corps and its subsidiaries from his father Rupert Murdoch, was also present for that interview. Now he now controls many of the world's most influential media networks, and. I think him being there come is significant amid the president's pleas for journalists to keep a spotlight on Ukraine, and at a time, of course, when Republicans and Democrats are row, in a row over how much American money should be sent to Kiev. Zelensky thanked reporters across the globe for garnering support and countering Russian misinformation. All this time, he said, journalists, cameramen, editors, photographers, drivers have been on the front line. As this is a hybrid war, information is also a weapon in Russian hands. My sincere condolences to the families and friends of those very brave men and women who lost their lives trying to show what is happening in Ukraine. And of course, on the podcast, we've detailed many instances of journalists who've lost their lives reporting on this war. Now, lastly, just turning to naval matters, Russia and India are holding joint naval exercises in the Bay of Bengal today. Russia's defence ministry has said the purpose being to comprehensively develop and strengthen naval cooperation between Russia and India. The exercises will last until Wednesday and involve ships from Russia's Pacific Fleet. Russia is, of course, trying to boost its presence in the region in response to the so-called tilt to the Pacific. We've discussed many times. And last week held drills with Myanmar. This will, suffice to say, cause concern. India is a country many hoped would align itself with the West when push came to shove, but it did not sanction Russia over the war, and indeed has been eager to maintain ties. And finally, just on the naval theme, the Nord Stream saga rumbles on. Russia is seeking political leverage for the destruction of Nord Stream. We learned today, which it claims was carried out by Ukraine. Speculation of which we've discussed at length only recently. They've said they may seek compensation for the sabotage, but will wait for an investigation to conclude. The probe is not over yet. We are waiting for its results to be presented to the UN Security Council. Then we will decide what to do. A foreign ministry official said. Now, of course, as listeners will be aware, Sweden, Denmark, the UK, and Kiev, I think, are all blamed for. Attacking Nord Stream by Moscow, they can't seem to make their mind up who's responsible, so they all sort of bung them all in together. But regardless, this is something where there is a lot of interest in this in Western countries, and it will be very interesting and potentially politically significant to see what the UN Security Council do conclude. Thank you, thanks, Francis. Now it's a great pleasure to invite back to the pod Aliona, former and indeed the youngest ever Ukrainian MP, now managing director at. The Henry Jackson Society, as I said earlier, Aliona, welcome, welcome. Today, as you know better than anyone, is the tenth anniversary of the Maidan protest. You were there on the barricades, microphone in hand, at great personal risk, as became clear over the following weeks when hundreds of protesters were killed by um, Yanukovych's security forces. 
Uh, we've heard uh, the Kremlin's condemned the, the Maidan as a, a foreign coup. Um, Peskov was saying a load of stuff, um, blah, blah, blah. Sponsored from abroad. Um, the fact that it was sponsored from abroad, I mean, straight away, the fact. Yeah, the fact it was sponsored from abroad has been acknowledged directly and indirectly. By whom, Dimitri? By whom? By representatives of foreign countries. That's no secret to anyone. Yeah, okay, fine. So he, he blathered on. Aliona, welcome. What are your memories from that day and, and the weeks uh, that followed as the protests carried on? And has the passage of 10 years given you a different perspective on events then? Thank you, Dom. It's really great to be here today, especially in the studio with Francis. I love how you're translating the Russian propaganda, just resorting to blah, 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 because that's effectively what it is. So that's very reassuring to hear you should serve as an example to your colleagues, journalists across the world. It's quite surreal for me today. As always, I wake up in the morning every day. I put on the address of President Zelensky. If I fail to watch it um, the previous evening, I watch it in the morning. And this morning, it was the address dedicated to the anniversary of the two revolutions. And for me, it is indeed two revolutions for the younger generation. And I am becoming slowly that person who says, back in my days and The younger generation doesn't remember this, but I used to be a part of the first revolution that's somewhat a myth in Ukraine now, the Orange Revolution. And 10 years ago, when we all gathered together on the main square in my hometown in Chernivtsi just to commemorate, to remember the day when we first came out uh, onto the streets for the Orange Revolution to fight for democracy, and mind you, with 10 years having passed, we all came out with bitterness onto that square and with very little hope. And it somewhat reminds me of this lack of hope today for many Ukrainians. And I'll, I'll get back to that a little bit later. But when we came out onto the streets in 2013 to remember how romantically, how hopeful we all were, how romantically we fought for our freedom against the falsification of elections in 2013, Four, well, back then it was autumn of 2003. After survived everything we've survived in the previous 10 years, because that's when I was, I, I will have been in politics for 10 years in, in 2013, going back to my comment about the previous generation. We've witnessed President Yanukovych come back into power, becoming almost authoritarian leader, dragging Ukraine back into Eurasian sphere of influence, bringing us closer to Russia, signing Kharkiv accords that allowed Russian Black Sea Fleet to stay in Crimea for another 50 years, whereas we were really looking forward to get rid of that influence in Crimea, just to get rid of Russian presence and Russian military base on the territory of our sovereign state. When we saw that all the talks about getting closer to Europe and signing the EU association agreement and eventually bring Ukraine into the EU, that they all came to nothing. And we were slowly but surely moving back into Moscow's orbit. It was quite disappointing to see that previous 10 years were basically spent on nothing, that my whole 20s went into this liberation fight of our whole generation. And it didn't really come to a head of Ukraine actually having that European future. And I was working for a political party whose leader was in jail, in fact. It was political prosecuted case, Yulia Tymoshenko, who was there in jail for three years. And we had very little hope that she would be able to get out either, that she would be able to get out alive. 
because she was starting to get serious health issues. And once we came out onto the street, I'm not going to lie, there was no sense of hope that all of a sudden some things are going to happen. And yet, that was the time when Yanukovych made the greatest mistake of his career, when he got oblivious enough and he cracked under Kremlin's pressure of not signing EU association agreement. And that evening, when Mustafa Nayem, also one of the activists of the younger generation of politicians, posted on Facebook and said, we're all gathering on Maidan in Kiev, come out whoever can. And I remember I was back in my hometown and I saw several people come out onto Maidan and I thought to myself, well, that's great and that's really romantic and bittersweet, but I guess that's it. And then the next day they collected again and the next day and the next day. And it continued for about a week. And after that, the, the number of crowds started getting smaller. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I guess that's it. And yet there was another crucial mistake on the 30th of November. I remember it to this day. I believe it was a weekend, either Saturday or, or maybe Friday. I think it was Saturday, but I hope the viewers forgive me if I'm wrong. The students came out because it was the weekend. And that's when police finally decided to go and to get rid of them. And the brutality was involved and there was bloodshed, the very first bloodshed on Maidan. And the next day, we have seen tens of thousands of Ukrainians come onto the independent square of Kyiv because we would not stand for that. And I think that's when, in the darkest hour, when you almost give up and when you think that all the hope is gone and the next day something happens, the miracle happens. And I think I've witnessed that miracle so many times on Maidan. And we had many more these kind of emotional ro roller coasters on Maidan throughout the next three months at the very least when we've all mobilized. We were in Kyiv. We brought about a, hundreds of, of thousands protesters that were rotating because you have to remember people had jobs. Students had to still go to university. Everyone had their own life and yet people would rotate. They would take a week off their work, go to Maidan, spend their time there, spend the night out in the freezing cold in those tents that we've built. We would burn woods and, and fire, try to collect warm clothes and blankets. And I remember I spent many evenings there being a volunteer, just giving out warm food and teas and coffees and making sandwiches with pig fat. Please don't get grossed out, our viewers. But that is a Ukrainian delicacy, and it keeps you really warm when it's minus 10 degrees outside. Um, and it was a real sense of unity, of national unity. We didn't always know where it's going, because when the leaders of the revolution would go to negotiate on Bankova, the address of president's administration with then-president Yanukovych, they would never come back with good news. And it almost seemed like they were not as determined as people on Maidan. So it was also very interesting to be in the middle of that, between the people with that spirit of unity and determination, not really knowing why, why they're there and what is their role in this, but just being there to send a clear message to the leaders of revolution that they're not going to leave and that the leaders need to do something about it. And going back to your question of who financed Maidan, especially all the foreign agents, CIA, FBI, you name it. I remember the pure despair 
of the leaders of Maidan when the Western officials would come. And that's when I met Senator John McCain, the late, late Senator John McCain, Victoria Nuland, when they would all come. Of course, Senator McCain was great on stage. He would talk about how Ukraine really matters, how this is an existential civilizational fight, because he was looking far ahead into the future and he knew what this fight was about. Whereas Victoria Nuland was very supportive and tried to be, I believe she was a special envoy to Ukraine back then. She tried to come to Kiev to talk to the protesters to make sure that the protest stays calm and peaceful. She would then go to Moscow, try to negotiate with the Kremlin. She would talk to President Yanukovych in the administration. And she would always be this moderator, but she didn't really bring much more, as I kept saying. And I talked to so many Russians after that, just Russian citizens who asked me, so you were there. Was it actually all sponsored by Americans? And I kept saying to them, I wish. I wish we had more support than the pastries that Victoria Nuland was so generously giving out on Maidan when we actually needed some solid support, some strong messaging that no violence should be applied to protesters. Because just a few months later, two months later, we saw the real anger of authoritarian elites lashed out onto the protests when it was just us with our wooden shields and our cobblestones and later Molotov cocktails. That's another important skill that I've acquired in my late 20s against bullets and brutal force of special forces, a unit in Ukraine called Berkut, which is now banned and is officially illegal in Ukraine because most of them actually fled to Russia and they're still there. Russia has generally hosted those people who were shooting peaceful protesters on Maidan. So to answer your question, we have financed ourselves. That is the beauty of Ukrainian fight. And I think that is the beauty of Ukrainian fight now that's continued after Maidan. Because I think I spoke about this on the first special video recording of Ukraine Delightis that was out for the first anniversary of the war. I said that so many volunteers straight from Maidan, because Russia annexed Crimea a few days later after President Yanukovych fled to Russia, all of those volunteers, the men who were equipped with wooden shields, who didn't get killed, luckily, they all went straight to Donbass to defend Ukraine's land. So that is one big fight for us. And as much as we've convinced now the West to help us provide the weapons and supplies and support and to believe that this is actually Ukraine's liberation fight against Imperial Russia, back then, no one really believed that it's a liberation fight. We were, I think we were viewed as political infighting, as various groups of influence in Ukraine opposing each other. And I think it's really reassuring to see that we've changed that narrative. And we might see a very difficult situation on the front line now. And things might be quite dire going into this winter and not knowing what, what 2024 holds. But I think having been at that darkest hour so many times throughout my 13 years in Ukrainian politics and now two years of this full-scale war, I think it only makes sense against all odds and against all evidence to just remain hopeful. Aliona, thank you for that. One question from me before we go to final thoughts. One we've talked about there how Moscow see this as a coup. Could, because of course Yanukovych was 
democratically elected as president. What just for, for clarity, what did legit- delegitimize Yanukovych? What was he doing specifically that meant that he was became this hostile force to democracy that needed to be mm. pushed out? Just for clarity, because I know that some people on propaganda, particularly coming out of Moscow, this is a key point that's driven home. So just trying to understand that in more detail. Mm. I'm trying to remember the decision passed by Verkhovna Rada, the parliament of Ukraine, after President Yanukovych fled the country. And I'm trying to remember the exact language because it was something along the lines of treason. But what actually meant the actual fact of why he was declared as illegitimate president. And mind you, his president's term was not just ended by the parliament of Ukraine, he is altogether cancelled. So he's the only president in Ukraine that we no longer call former president. He doesn't hold the title anymore, even that. So the reason why he's lost the legitimacy is because he gave the order or he approved the order. To this day, Having spoken to the leaders of of the movement back then, they were saying that it was actually his oldest son who was running the law enforcement agencies. He was this great cardinal in the institution who was giving away orders and who gave away the first order to attack the students on the 30th of November that caused this massive uprising. And then he was the one who also gave the second order to start shooting protesters. So some people were saying it wasn't directly his order, but he's the president, he holds responsibility, and he certainly approved it. So it was the fact that the president of the country started shooting his own peaceful civilians who came out onto the peaceful protest against his decision that completely took legitimacy off of him as a president of Ukraine. Aliana, thanks so much, but um, we need to, to move on to, to final thoughts. And I would just say just very quickly that, as Francis said earlier on, we know German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius is in Kiev, going to be meeting President Zelensky, and we believe Rustam um, of the uh, Defence Minister, as well. Germany, as, I, as I've said before, is the world's second largest provider of military aid to Ukraine after the US. So they will undoubtedly be saying, President Zelensky will undoubtedly be saying thanks for that, uh, but it will then pause, I'm sure, and ask for Taurus, the uh, German cruise missile. And I think the reasons against Germany supplying Taurus, that it might be escalatory or in, in some way set a precedent, I think are now overtaken by events. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens in the next 24 hours and, uh, and keep an eye on statements from Boris Pistorius in Kiev. But Francis, over to you for final thoughts, please. Well, thanks, Tom. It's very easy for us, I think, to lose sight with everything else going on of the ongoing work to bring the perpetrators of war crimes to justice. But I wanted to end today with the news that the US has sanctioned two Russian officers who killed civilians in Bucha and Andrivka, two places, of course, well known to listeners who've been with us since the beginning of this war. So Colonel Umabekov, who is known, of course, as the Butcher of Bucha, was the commanding officer of a Russian brigade that occupied those two settlements north of Kiev in early 2022. He is believed to have ordered the killing, beating, dismemberment, burning and also mock executions of many civilians in Butcher. That's the view of the US State Department, at least. And as we reported at the time, was tellingly awarded Russia's highest honour by Putin. 
The other individual is Corporal Frolkin, a member of the same brigade, and he confessed to journalists in August last year that he killed a civilian in Drodrivka in March last year. He was also revealingly given a suspended five and a half year sentence by a Russian military court for spreading false information about the army in March this year. These sanctions bar both men and their immediate families from entering the US rather modest as punishments go, but it is really designed, I think, to show that these crimes are not being forgotten and to serve as a deterrent for others and to maintain awareness. Just to reiterate, any peace deal with Russia where Putin remains in charge will almost certainly require that these individuals are essentially relieved of the responsibility for their actions, perhaps not in the eyes of international law, but in practical reality, as certain avenues will close because the invasion will have effectively been mandated by the secession of territory being formally signed. And I'm yet to hear a persuasive argument against that fact. So if the West is serious about ensuring that war crimes are not legitimised as a weapon of war, then defeating the Russians outright in Ukraine and giving the Ukrainians the support required to do that must be a priority. Thanks, Francis. And as our guest, Aliona, what were your final thoughts? Thank you, Dom. I think following on what Francis was saying about war crimes, I've also been doing some investigation for the research paper on Russian influence in Ukraine for the Baltic Defence College. And shout out to Baltic Defence College, who has generously given me an extension for a week to finish my paper. I've been doing some research into the State Bureau investigation cases, and there's a whole department on their website dedicated to killings on Maidan. And it's great to see that they're actually making good progress. It's very difficult to find A, who gave the orders, B, who passed them on down the civil service chain, and who's actually pulled the trigger. Most of the people who pulled the trigger are unfortunately either in Russia, some of them are arrested in Ukraine and are under investigation. So that's ongoing, but it's great to see that even during at the time of war, at the time of the EU accession reforms and tracking war crimes committed on our land, we're still not forgetting the victims of Maidan. And I think that shows true dedication of a nation who knows where its core is. When it comes to final words about the war, I came into the studio today and I talked to you, Dom and Francis, that, you know, speaking to some soldiers on the front line, one of whom is my brother, who's going back to the front line near Avdiivka soon, um, and talking about the Western fatigue of the war, I would say that I had several conversations that signify exhaustion uh, on Ukraine's side, especially from the soldiers. They do very often resort to banter, trying to be uplifted about it, have a sense of humor, but there's always an underlying deep sadness and tragedy behind that. And despite that, as I've mentioned before, for Ukrainians, the darkest times always end in dawn. And I still, even though I might not feel that emotionally right now, I'm trying to tap into that feeling and knowledge that I always have based on my previous 13 years 
and two revolutions in Ukraine. That even when I lost hope before, things would dramatically turn around and change just out of nowhere. So that is my message today to perhaps fellow Ukrainians who are listening to the podcast, and I know they are. Let's stay strong. And even if we do lose hope emotionally, the help will inevitably come. On Friday, David spoke to Kirillo Beskorvani, co-founder of the platform Science at Risk and the popular science media Kunst, and Yuri Halavka, head of the Department of General Chemistry and Chemistry of Materials at the Chernivtsi National University. We wanted to understand the impact of the full-scale invasion on Ukrainian scientists, their research and scientific infrastructure. Here's their conversation. Kirillo and Yuri, thank you so much for joining me today. Can I just ask you both uh, to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your lives, uh, your work and your research. Uh, Kirillo, would you like to start? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Kirillo Beskorovainy. I am co-founder of Ukrainian popular science media called Kunst. I am a science journalist and I am co-founder of the initiative Science at Risk. Yuri? And I'm uh, Yuri Halavka. I'm doctor of uh, chemistry and also professor of chemistry at the Chernivtsi National University. It's in the Western Ukraine, so I'm also doing a lot of science popularization and some projects also together with Kunst as well. Well, let's talk about the state of science in Ukraine. Kirillo, could you give us an overview of the impact of the full-scale invasion on uh, scientists, their work and the institutions they work in? Yeah, sure. So basically what we know is that the majority of uh, scientists remain in Ukraine. Since the full-scale invasion started, we saw the figures of around 80% of scientists remaining in Ukraine and 20% moving out of the country abroad. But now this figure is smaller. So around 90% of scientists are right now in Ukraine. Uh, so some of scientists have come, come back since the full-scale invasion. I actually have the, the slides from our presentation yesterday at John Hopkins University, and I see the, that one of the groups, they have um, calculated that a success rate in the calls for funding for those who remain in Ukraine is rather small. It's 3 to 5%, which is frustrating. So basically, if scientists apply for a grant application for funding, only 3 to 5% receive it, meaning of those who remain in the country. Since the full-scale invasion, the brain drain is actually encouraged. But of course, we know that male scientists are not able to leave the country. And that also has influenced the scientific mobility of scientists because for scientists, it's very important to participate in uh, international conferences, uh, to, uh, to to go abroad, to learn from uh, other countries and from other scientists worldwide. And now for half of, uh, of scientists, it's impossible. I think you will also be interested in one more figure uh, just for the scope, just to understand how it, the numbers of scientists have changed since the Ukrainian independence. So basically, in 1991, there were 295,000 scientists in Ukraine, and now this figure has decreased to six times. So the figure for 2022 were that there are 52.4 thousand scientists in Ukraine. So that's, I, I don't know if, how, detail, how much detail do you want on each of those? Maybe Yuri will pick up on uh, infrastructure and on uh, ecosystem. 
Yeah, I, I would also comment. I mean, we, when we count people with degrees, it's about 100,000. So we, we count it like this, but of course, not all of them are working in science, some of them working whatever in government or whatever. So within that, I mean, we would uh, between 600, let's say, or 50,000, sorry, and uh, 100,000 of scientists. And when we are talking about infrastructure, of course, there were huge uh, infrastructure facilities in Kharkiv, for example, which is very close to Russian border, that were basically damaged almost either completely or heavily or severely damaged uh, that uh, will need a lot of investments in the restoration and so on. And this is not taking into account some minor things like whatever windows broken, and the major building of Kharkiv National University where most of their labs are. So basically they cannot just function as usual because they have lost about whatever, 400 or 500 windows at once after one rocket landed at the main Kharkiv Square. And uh, I mean, you can find a lot of uh, examples on the south of Ukraine, also in Mykolaiv and Kherson. Uh, they were destroying basically Marine Academy, State University, all other minor um, uh, universities as well were basically constantly under fire and very recently state library was destroyed there just a standing alone building i mean there was nothing around it but they were targeting directly the library so we, we see from then that there are intentions to destroy this infrastructure particularly also leading one because as you I mean, as in Kharkiv, there were really unique facilities like a nuclear neutron source uh, was damaged and so on. So actually, we, we observed that the, there is a specific focus in, in, in destroying of scientific infrastructure. Yuri, can I stay with you? What's your experience been over the past two years as an educator in science? How have you dealt with some of the challenges and what are they? Well, we are quite at the western part of Ukraine, so we don't experience like direct whatever threats of rocket launches or something. But also in the nearby areas, some of the uh, rockets were taken down, for example. And because we cannot really predict what is the target at the moment, so it's still the tension is still there. Basically, what we have suffered from is this electricity failures. And also there were some issues with heating, for example, and some comfort of the audiences and, and so on. Also, there are constant uh, air rate alarms uh, and alerts. So we had to go to, we had to stop our classes in that case and go back. So basically it probably uh, remains Britain in the <laughs> Second World War. Uh, so that pretty much very, I, I actually wanted to learn more about this experience in Britain because we have very similar cases now very often uh, and also our students uh, when they ask what what is your experience and so on they say okay I'm going to classes with all my uh, belongings let's say and main documents because I don't know where I will uh, where and when I will end up let's say this day because I mean there could be alert there could be some other things so they are always be prepared let's say and uh, this is also adds stress and so on. Also, a lot of other, I mean, family members and other people around experiencing, for example, stress because their relatives are at war and so on. We have cases, my native brother, for example, is at war. The, my colleagues in the lab, she has two sons at war and so on. So it puts a lot of pressure on people anyway. And actually, 
uh, also students have their parents at war and so on. So this affects our creativity definitely. It affects a lot of other things. And this also as a consequence, let's say. Personally, we don't experience big kind of uh, breaks in our research. We are still doing the chemistry experiments. We're still collaborating with other people, but uh, so far it's not uh, very still well managed and it's still difficult to plan. Also, we had a lot of collaborations with Kharkiv, with Kyiv, and this is now also a bit interrupted. Uh, and I'm not sure if, yeah, how easy it will be to recover. We had a paper submitted in, I guess, in April. And for that, we had to plan our measurements in Kyiv, like between all those blackouts and so on. And that's quite expensive and complicated machine. So it was very difficult even to manage to organize quite whatever ordinary uh, measurements, let's say. Thank you so much, Yuri, for sharing all of that. Uh, Kirilla, you must have heard a lot of different stories in your time as a as sort of organizing, doing science journalism. What stands out for you over the past two years of stories that you really think people outside Ukraine should should know about? Yeah, our team has gone to, to different parts of Ukraine uh, to make reportages, to take photos, to talk to scientists. And what is very sad is that, for instance, the stories when science was completely destroyed or looted, for instance, in the in Kherson National Museum, all the collection, almost all of the collection, all important artifacts, valuable artifacts were looted. Or, for instance, uh, in Skovorodinivka, the um, origin, uh, the, the place where Grigory Skovoroda, a very uh, famous and beloved philosopher and Ukrainian poet, uh, lived, his museum was completely destroyed. So there's nothing left there. Just And seeing those pictures and talking to people who dedicated the whole life to this, to the, to this museum, to this work, is just heartbreaking sometimes. <clears throat> And, and sometimes even just to add to what Yuri has mentioned, even when there was not direct like missile strike to an institution, like for instance, in rather peaceful Kiev in botanical gardens, just because blackouts and power outages, they are losing their collections because they're not like during winter, they have to keep up the temperature of the botanical garden of the like plants, greenhouses, yes, exactly. And they cannot do it uh, because of, of that, even though that there were no direct strikes. So just just to seeing people behind the numbers is uh, is striking and heartbreaking. And um, I'm originally from Chernihiv and my city has suffered uh, very much because it was like encircled during the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And, and one of the stories that struck me uh, the most is about them or among those that struck me very much, was about the Karolenko uh, library. So the Russian army knew that they were going to leave the positions, so go out of the north. But the last thing they shelled in Chernihiv was the library, which didn't have any military object whatsoever in, in the vicinity. So they just destroyed the library, which is which was very, it's weird, but in a way we, we understand why they do it because they, they are now pausing or destroying life for now, but when they destroy science and scientific infrastructure, they also destroying the future. So imagining that the war ends, but then the 35% of infrastructure is gone, people are gone, and then 
we, we understand that science, it's about the future development. It's about economic development and of our country. And that's very sad. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, just to sum up, uh, answering your question, the stories, we are trying to put the human face to all those numbers that are striking and just t- talking to people, talking to scientists. And we, we always admire people who, as soon as the territory is deoccupied, it's sometimes even not like completely demined. People go there who are the directors of museums, who are directors of facilities just to keep up with their work. Can I ask you both then a little bit about resilience? It's nearly 21 months, I think, since the start of the full-scale invasion. You've already lived through one winter of blackouts and energy shortages, which, as you've said, uh, has hugely disrupted experiments. Um, Carillo, you mentioned how it's just destroyed the work of, for example, the botanical gardens. Looking ahead to to the incoming winter, what kind of things have you had to do or what innovations maybe have have, have you been able to implement to try and uh, reduce as much as possible the the chances of this happening? When you look ahead and plan, what do you do? What do you think of? Yeah, so I I would tell our example. We we actually backed up with some batteries, for example, for for long term, uh, whatever. Not very long term, but at least, for example, I have it at... Every classroom, basically, they have a small battery that you can continue your lectures if you if there is sudden power breakage or something like that. So this is at least a lot of institutions, not only university, but also a lot of institutions like kindergartens and schools, they uh, purchase uh, also generators for basically those situations. So basically, and a lot of businesses as well. So so basically, banks and everything, and every pharmacy, for example, you could find a generator or something working like this. So people will get used to that, and actually, a lot of things were purchased like in December already when when everything started, but they were delivered later. So they are already now installed, for example, and organized and reduced. Of course, it's. It's very minor measures because, I mean, if you have nuclear power plants uh, attack and off-grid, then you cannot just compensate it with generators. But I guess they, they, they calculated somehow that we imported maybe one gigawatt of, of power of those generators, I mean, in the country. And also all those batteries that we, I mean, they were designed for fishing or for some outdoor activities now, Basically, in, in every flat in the country as there, and people are working and internet providers provide optical fiber internet. I, I gave uh, last November, I guess, I gave uh, two invited lectures at the conference online from my mobile phone, from this, those classes, because there was uh, no electricity in the building, but power grid, I mean, uh, mobile coverage and mobile networks were, were still uh, running. So it, it was still possible. So principle, in principle, we are kind of prepared. Uh, also shelters are there, shelters are renovated uh, in schools, universities, and so on. Uh, I don't know what about heating because it's a bit more difficult to, to arrange and, and so on. But I guess in the country also claimed that they have enough gas uh, storage now, even more than previous winter. So basically, from that point of view, we are more or less, at least we are more prepared than, than it last year. Yuri, can I ask, I mean, you've both spoken about 
the the attacks on scientific infrastructure, libraries, labs in Kharkiv, libraries in Hassan uh, across the country. As a practicing sort of scientist yourself and an educator of the next generation of scientists, what what are your reactions when you see those pictures and when you learn, as Kirillo said, that things like the last thing the Russian forces did, you know? Well, it's, it's of course it's yeah, sorry, it's it, it's quite sad. Of course, I mean, of course, a lot of things are digitalized. A lot of uh, heritage is already either backup or something. But of course, when we are talking about artifacts, about real books and other things, it can be a, a very, very difficult to restore. And uh, I, I understand this. For example, in our case, we have a shelter in the, in the library. <laughs> so so whenever there is danger, I go to library. So it's, it's like, you know, the play, play, place to save ourselves. And I, I still also, we had a very interesting case because of uh, uh, loss of electricity. Students were coming to us and asked us about paper books because they can light up a candle and read a book. And uh, if, if they don't have a light on the mobile phone, they cannot access the online system or whatever managing system or web page. So they were asking about paper stuff. And actually, that was very also like touching because it's yeah like a very interesting experience. So yeah, from from that point of view, it's it's really difficult. I mean, to understand that a lot of things will not be rebuilt as it was possible. Um, in building, you can still reconstruct, but a lot of things are inside, are damaged, and so on. We also experience. That's another story. We also experience big losses in, for example, natural heritage, like whatever. Uh, uh, preservation areas, some other things. A lot of them were in the south of uh, like this part between Dnieper River and Crimea. It was full of different protection areas, basically, and also Crimea was basically all uh, the, the kind of resort and also those things. So they are also heavily damaged due to the war. And it has a probably also worldwide impact as well, because some species are living there, which are very rare. And uh, there is no one taking care of that or even purposely damaging them. Like a lot of people had also studied, so I could study like dolphins in the Black Sea and some other things uh, that are dying actually because of war activities. And it's, it's another problem. So it's not only about humans and uh, kind of physical artifacts, it's also about nature and, uh, and other things that, for example, a lot, a lot of uh, zoologists and also people who study plants like that, they cannot go there to study all those things and so on. So we, we cannot, a lot of people lost their objects of investigation, or objects of studies within that, that work. So it's also an, an, another story. And uh, uh, yeah, so I, I guess it's, it's still difficult. We, we expect that a lot of things will be rebuilt. Also like in Kiev and other places, they already started to renovate those buildings that were damaged. But of course, what was inside, not always can be easily recovered. Kirilla, do you want to add anything to that? And can I ask, when, when you were a student, were you, did you go for paper books or were you more digital? You're looking quite fresh-faced, so I imagine it was mainly online. Yeah, I, I, I like paper books. So, so <laughs> I, I, I think that's, uh, that, that's a great way to spend the blackout uh, reading a book because the candles are more uh, available than the... Uh, than the light and electricity. What I wanted to add to that is that, uh, so b- basically, if I may tell a little bit of our work. So um, the Science at Risk uh, is, is the initiative that we have initiated actually to 
understand how to deal with the full-scale invasion and science. Basically, this all has started at, in March 2022 when we were approached by one international organization uh, just to help gather scientists on Zooms, uh, j just like at roundtables to collect the needs. And when we collected those needs, we understood that there are so many that we have to do something with it. So we decided to like have a, this baby step approach and try to write a grant and, and start working on those issues. So basically, that's how Science at Risk initiative was born. And we received this first small grant from a U.S. embassy in Kiev and then a bigger grant for from Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and it uh, enabled us to hire 30 Ukrainian scientists uh, who are working in three groups on white papers. And now we're almost done uh, with nine uh, white papers, which will soon be published in Ukrainian and English on the platform scienceatrice.org. And there, so basically those groups are working on three areas, on preserving, communicating, and restoring uh, science at risk in Ukraine. And they have uh, provided the analytics uh, through uh, focus groups, uh, interviews with experts, uh, case studies, etc., for the information that different stakeholders throughout the world can take a look and see, understand what how is science doing <laughs> during the, the full-scale invasion. And actually, there is, I, I'm the curator of the group on communication. And there are interesting cases, for instance, on how citizen science is used in during the full-scale invasion. So basically how Ukrainians can document ecological crimes due to, for instance, ECOBOT uh, that they can just document it and send it, and then a scientist will be able to analyze those issues. And there are so many uh, other things in the research, but also the important thing is that we are compiling two databases, on the, and they are already available on scienceatrice.org. One of them is of Ukrainian science experts who know English and who are proficient in their spheres. So basically, if you go to the platform and you type a keyword, I don't know, like chemistry or physics or maybe something more specific, you will be able to find profiles of scientists and you will be able to read a little bit about their research and directly contact them. So whether uh, you're a journalist or maybe you're a researcher who wants some kind of collaboration, uh, you can do that. And we already have one, over 100 scientists, but we keep adding them and they go through some uh, uh, expert verification, so to say. And we hope that can help build the bridges between Ukrainian scientists and world scientists. Yuri, can I ask, what's the value of this project for you? What do you take from it? So for me, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the also initiators because I was also running some social media initiatives on Ukrainian scientists worldwide. And uh, for me, it was important to keep this connection of people within the country and those who left the country, either temporary during the invasion or those who actually left earlier and are already established scientists and have their careers and so on. So from my point of idea, the value was actually to bring them also together again in the response to this invasion. So also to um, involve external expertise, for example, also to find those experts, to find those certain people, yes, so, so, so to, to bring them together. Also for me, it's also important personally because uh, I used to study Germany. I returned back 
to Ukraine uh, 15 years ago. And so I know what does it mean to change the environment back to the places where you studied at uh, university or at school. And uh, I guess this is still, the understanding of this process and those feelings is still missing. I mean, when people are talking, like ministries, when they are talking, okay, we need those people back, let's say, and so on. And to do that, you need to understand those people, yeah, their needs. What do they need to return? What do they need to work again in science? Because a lot of people who left the country, unfortunately, they don't continue their career in science. They were rush in rush so they were capturing any job or status they could capture so they not necessarily continue their scientific career and for me it's a kind of a difficult story because i would like to bring those people back actually to science not even not not in the country but just in science itself because i really appreciate their skills and, and so on so and actually what we observe now for example when when some um, international funding agencies on some other projects are uh, making calls for funding, for example, they are overwhelmed with good applications. So they, as Kirillo mentioned at the beginning, success rate is very low just because the abilities are low, but, but the demand is huge. And the quality of those applications are also quite good. And all referees say that out of... I mean, you plan to uh, to fund like 20 applications and you receive 700 um, of them. So, I mean, it means that there is a huge potential in the country and also in, in those people, uh, which still could be fulfilled, let's say, or watered, let's say, yeah, and uh, that it will grow and, and flourish, despite all those issues, whatever, personal uh, threats, whatever, infrastructural threats, threats, and so on. So, so that was for me. And also, I would like to share my experience and also to talk to all those people who are working on, because we are working on preservation. I'm, I'm responsible for preservation group. So actually, it's, it's very touching also to read all those stories, what people collected when they were talking to, to, to managers from those institutions who are completely destroyed or completely occupied, and so on. And all those lessons that we have learned or actually our failures also that we haven't uh, have done <laughs> it's also need to be known in the world as well because i mean we had this first uh, conflict or war started in uh, like 10 years ago already on the donbas and since that uh, there was no plans basically to evacuate for example uh, universities so there were plans for local evacuation in case of disaster, natural disaster or something. But uh, in the, the fighting countries, there was there were no plans how to evacuate, for example, a big university infrastructure. And there were no such plans like this. And uh, now we are also suffering from that. So we would like to document it and to spread it as well to the world. Because, I mean, you can never predict in this world what's going to happen but i mean at least to have plans maybe not also not not on i mean if you don't have resources you cannot always have uh, measures but at least to have plans or at least to, to tell people what to do at some point yeah what what could be done let's say now, this is also for us important for this project but also for for me personally just to finish, can, can I ask both of you if there's anything we haven't spoken about that you'd like to mention but also 
it would be good to hear, I think, for, I think our listeners would appreciate hearing from you on your opinions of what would you want the outside world to know about Ukrainian science, aside from the full-scale invasion? What uh, sort of, Are there particular projects or scientists or events in history that you, you feel really should be better known? Kirillo or Yuri, I don't, know, don't, I don't know who would like to go first. Maybe Kirillo, since Yuri gave the last answer. Yeah, sure. So maybe one of the takeaways of research that the groups of scientists have done in, in Science at Risk is that it, the collaborations is very important for Ukrainian science. And even though the infrastructure is damaged, destroyed, still it, it would be very helpful to reach out to Ukrainian scientists and find a common project that Ukrainian scientists can work on because we have many, many qualified scientists and people in Ukraine that remain in Ukraine. And for instance, they don't may not have as some sophisticated infrastructure, but they still can get the measurements from someone from around the world and then work with them. So for instance, the, the good case, it's a, a Hadron Collider, where someone does measurements there and then sends them, for instance, from there to Ukraine and scientists in Ukraine uh, make sense of this data, they analyze it and so on. And this can be done in, with the telescopes, with the different uh, equ other equipment. So that's very important. That's one thing. Another thing is that this, this topic is all very often overlooked because, of course, uh, the, the number one priority is to win the war, of course. But then, once again, we need to think of it because that's a very important thing for us to leapfrog forward, to win the war and to grow as a country economically, but also have a, have a much more capacity. So I think that's very important to to keep that the science also on the radar. Yeah, but if I, I would like to say, for example, natural sciences are quite strong, basic sciences are quite strong. So also students, for example, of our alumni of our universities are quite flexible because of this. So they can choose a lot of topics in other countries, for example, in other groups, and they switch quite easily what we see from our alumni over the, the country. This is one point. Another point is actually uh, a lot of science, uh, social sciences and humanities are also not really discovered yet from the Western point of view. And this has to be changed, definitely, because we also have quite good and remarkable scientists uh, here, or scholars, let's say, uh, in humanities, and they are writing interesting stories and interesting like studies are done, and they are very often uh, overlooked as well because of huge Russia, uh, Russian uh, influence, let's say, but also because Ukraine was not really promoting it quite actively. But basically, you can very often, in, in every university, you can find interesting person in humanities, let's say, or in art, or in some social uh, sciences, and so on. So this still has to rise up, and I guess not only Snyder has to talk about uh, Ukraine, but also Ukrainians have to talk about Ukraine as well. That's another story. As I say, from all a lot of our discussions and whatever, talking to people, we realize that we really need more hope than help, actually, because from that point of view, really, you, you can plan forward, you can do a lot of things despite all, all those issues we're suffering, but with a, a strong understanding of future, for example, or with having some solid ground 
under your legs, let's say, with the support of international community, with the willingness of international community to accept us, whatever, as a scientist, as a country representatives, or as a other kind of uh, roles. This is very important. And I guess still Ukrainian scientists still to be rediscovered by, by the Western uh, and also international community. So I really would like to work more on that. And I guess Kirill and others within the project, it will also work on that. And we also, I mean, science at risk, when you understand what does it mean really, you really would like to decrease this influence of wars and disasters on science. And for that, you need probably centers or residences or some other places where people can shelter, for example, and work for a while when there is war in their country. And in our dream, we're also thinking about having such center, let's say, in Ukraine for also scientists who are in need, let's say, and who, who want to spend a bit of time away from the disaster and then things like that. So we will also try to find funding also for such things, just because we ourselves suffered from that, we understand what does it mean, and we would like to share our experience, first of all, in a good manner, let's say, and a good uh, perspectives. Yuri and Kirillo, thank you so much for your time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're also doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.